I compare it to a gushing water pipe in a in a funding desert. Um, it really was uh, a lot of money to kind of not just play around with, but cement some ideologies or aesthetic viewpoints um, regarding avant-garde or serialist um, or, or even just Western art music writ large. It is one thing to write a manifesto, it is another thing to bring it into reality. Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. So, in 1958, the composer Milton Babbitt writes this infamous essay for High Fidelity magazine, which he titles The Composer a Specialist, and which his editor cannily retitles Who Cares If You Listen. In it, Babbitt makes a cogent argument for the period. Composers like him are writing increasingly abstruse, scientific, modernist music that can't easily be understood by the general public. At a time in which scientists are receiving massive amounts of government and university funding for doing things that were also abstruse and not easily understood by the public. It was the Sputnik moment, the space race, the nuclear age, and Babbitt argued that American avant-garde artists should be able to tap into a bit of that sweet Cold War support that was so widespread for scientists. In the most polemical moment of the essay, Babbitt argues that composers might make a, quote, total, resolute, and voluntary withdrawal from this public world to one of private performance and electronic media. That sentence and the title of Babbitt's essay have dictated a kind of ongoing conversation among American composers since the 1960s. Should they care about who listens to their music? This decades-long back and forth, though, overlooks a crucial component of Babbitt's manifesto. It's one thing to make a demand, but it's another thing entirely to have that demand actually fulfilled. My guests on the podcast today are musicologists Eduardo Herrera and Michael Wee. Last fall, they both published new books in which they researched extensively the answer to that question. What were the mechanisms that fueled and funded a new infrastructure for the musical avant-garde in the Americas during the Cold War? I say Americas because this wasn't just a U.S.-specific issue. In the 1960s, Babbitt's modernist ideology was shared by figures in Latin America who helped create the Centro Latinoamericano de Altos Estudios Musicales, or CLAIM, a hub for the musical avant-garde in Argentina. Funding and shaping both the U.S. and Latin American enterprises was the hugely influential Rockefeller Foundation, which will form the jumping-off point for our conversation today. The story of how all this happened is one of money and power, and of Cold War experts and elites, as you'll hear now in this episode of Sound Expertise. So thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, we have Michael Wee and Eduardo Herrera joining us to talk about um, the role of Cold War patronage on the avant-garde in the Americas. Um, and to start off, I just want both of you to say a quick hello so we can hear your voices and know who's speaking when they're speaking. So hi, Michael. Hi, Will. Hi, Eduardo. Hi, Will. Thanks for inviting us. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. So I'll start off with a question for Michael, um, which is about a topic that both of your books share in common, the role of the Rockefeller Foundation in supporting avant-garde music in the Americas in the 1950s and 1960s. Michael, can you talk a little bit about what the Rockefeller Foundation was, how it came to be a major supporter of the arts, broadly speaking, and then specifically how it ended up funding a lot of modernist music in this period? Sure. So the Rockefeller Foundation was founded in 1913 uh, by John D. Rockefeller. He was estimated by some to be um, the, the richest man in the world, um, the richest man in a, in a really long time. And so uh, with the advisement of um, a Baptist minister, uh, Frederick D. Gates, he uh, established this foundation to unquote, improve mankind. Uh, they have always been interested in funding and supporting a whole range of different areas. Um, 
But in terms of the arts and humanities, you get some kind of uh, ventures in the 1930s, but it's not until 1953 there was this big uh, grant to um, commission new works with the Louisville Orchestra. And then uh, you have program officers who are working uh, within the social sciences who also start um, exploring grants to music, arts, and the humanities that uh, eventually lead to a, a division for the arts in 1965. And like what, I mean, they originally spent, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, on new works for the Louisville Orchestra, which is, I guess, millions of dollars in today's money. Like why new music in particular when, I don't know, they could have like probably very safely funded just like the Metropolitan Opera or even just the Louisville Orchestra kind of playing Beethoven or whatever. Sure. Well, they, they did um, fund Lincoln Center. So right, they, right. I mean, that was a huge project of uh, the Rockefeller kind of family. Um, so they, they definitely did uh, a fund kind of what we might say are more conservative um, uh, approaches to arts funding. But uh, in terms of the Louisville Orchestra grants and, and the ones that came after, it really had to do with the people that they consulted uh, for recommendation. And so I uh, talk about the experts that they brought in, um, people who had uh, strong institutional elite affiliations. And these were uh, composers and um, uh, orchestra managers who who said, hey, look, there's interesting stuff going on with this orchestra or with this university. Uh, I think that you should start putting in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, uh, which in today's value is kind of millions or tens of millions of dollars um, into these new music projects. But it really had to do with the people that they brought in as experts. Interesting, yeah. I wanna talk, definitely talk about some of, some of those people and kind of who they were and, and what their motivations were. But to kind of kick it over to Eduardo, you know, you've written a bit about the Rockefeller family specifically having this kind of intertwined philanthropic and business interests that were also related to kind of what the U.S. government was up to during the Cold War. Can you talk a little bit about how some of those arts goals in the Rockefeller Foundation intersected with their um, political ideas, their business desires, and, and all those kind of intertwined things, which ultimately leads to what you're writing about this Latin American Electronic Music Center. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the, the, the way that this intersects with Latin America is fascinating because a lot of that money came from oil and a lot of that oil was coming from Latin America. And in particular, uh, the interest of the Rockefeller family uh, on Venezuela uh, and, and, and specifically Nelson, uh, triggers an interest in understanding Latin America. Nelson is very worried that the people that are working in Venezuela are not uh, speaking Spanish, not uh, understanding where is it that they are. And as uh, the U.S. starts becoming kind of like a uh, uh, seen in a negative political light because of, for, of foreign affairs, uh, you know, during the 20th century, all the invention, uh, interventions, all the invasions, occupations, uh, then Rockefeller feels that they need to establish a better, better connections, better uh, ties with the region. So it's interesting that at that point, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation starts paying more and more attention to Latin American projects, even though there's supposed to be an independence between the business side and the philanthropic side, there is a turn towards, uh, towards philanthropy in the region. And it is during the 40s that Nelson Rockefeller, with this interest at heart of like improving the business conditions in Latin America, starts participating more and more into in government. And eventually, when he's proposing uh, some sort of uh, cultural exchange programs, he's told, why don't you just direct this project from this office, which uh, in the short version is called the Office of Inter-American Affairs. And uh, this from the 40s, he starts doing all this uh, kind of... Uh, cultural exchanges and, and what we'll call now cultural diplomacy efforts, uh, including the famous Walt Disney uh, movies where uh, Donald Duck meets the, the Brazilian Jose Carioca. I have not. 
not seen those. Okay. Oh, it's uh, completely worth it. And and then the tres amigos, the three amigos, which are the Mexican uh, counterparts, and uh, you know, and Donald Duck dancing samba and things like this. But it's part of, of a whole uh, set of efforts, and it dovetails nicely with uh, what Michael was telling us because those individual efforts of supporting avant-garde, especially with the Louisville Orchestra, start having strange uh, uh, reception within the Rockefeller. There's some doubt that helping the arts through individual commissions is the way to go. And I think one of the things that matters is that some of these works, people just simply didn't like them, uh, which, which uh, to some it was okay. They felt that supporting the arts was good enough that they didn't have to like the result. But some sort, to, to, to some degree, for some, this was kind of discouraging finding this art that they didn't like. Uh, but the turn that happens is one that says, instead of supporting individuals, let's support institutions uh, so that we have more uh, structural impact in, in this particular field. And that's when the two meet because there's an interest in Latin America and there's an interest in supporting the arts, but through institutions. So we get to the beginning of the 1960s with these two things in mind. And here comes Alberto Ginastera and John Harrison. John Harrison, John P. Harrison is one of the officers of the Rockefeller Foundation in charge of Latin America. Uh, they meet and they've been thinking about something similar, which is creating some sort of important music uh, program in, in Latin America. And thus comes the second highest funding prog uh, program in, the, in music, which the first is as the, the Louisville and the only bigger one is actually the, the Lincoln Center, but uh, towards the arts. But here comes this, the, the, the next one in, in money is a project to organize a Latin American school in South America, in Argentina. So that's kind of like where that particular uh, intersection happens. And that's CLAM, which we'll talk a little bit about in a minute, but the kind of other interlocking, I guess, like big context for this, right, is like with both the electronic music centers in center, I guess, in Latin America and all of the centers, which we'll talk about soon that are established across the United States, either electronic music centers or kind of university contemporary music centers. Like there's, there's this idea that these are kind of laboratories, right? Which is maybe also the reason why it's more interesting to support these than individual commissions too, right? Because it like, it gives them the sense that, you know, this is the Sputnik moment. The U.S. is entering the space race. There's this kind of fierce competition with the Soviets over military supremacy, but also like scientific and mathematical, um, you know, space race thought. And so like avant-garde music works really well in this context, right? If you frame it as coming out of a kind of almost laboratory ideology, is that, do you think, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is a whole discourse about the scientificity of music making at this time that matches the uh, the modernizing efforts that are being pushed towards Latin America. Now, this particular moment cannot be understood without thinking about the Cuban Revolution. The big fear in the Cold War that is triggered by the Cuban Revolution is that the rest of, rest of Latin America will uh, follow in order to affect social change. So the response of the U.S. is try to create this change in a non-revolutionary way by supporting what they call a modernization project. And here's where one of those overlaps, one of my points in, 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 in my book, and that I think is the same with uh, Michael, is that we really talk about the people involved and not necessarily like the abstract institution. Right. So we have that the policies in the US that are talking about modernization theory call, come from Walt Rostow. Walt Rostow is, is an advisor to the government, especially to uh, President Kennedy. And Rostow actually works and informs the work of who will become Secretary of, Sp of, of State, Dean Rusk, who's just recently president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, so he comes out and participates of, of this, and it's, in, it's uh, sustaining the economic discourse. When you see how the Rockefeller family, and particularly David, I would say, but also Nelson, talk about economic development and political changes, they talk with the, the, the words that Walt Rostow has kind of crafted and created, the stages that countries need to go through to modernize. 
And this modernization was seen as an essential way of stopping the possibility of, of revolution. So when, uh, when you think about music and the objectives of creating these music centers, one of the objectives was to modernize this uh, groups of people that were seen as behind, right? These composers that were behind, which was different than what was happening in Europe. Europe, the Marshall Plan was the idea was to rebuild what was already there, uh, and same oh, thing happens with the right. 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 The, the, the musical projects in Europe, that that for instance, the the Congress for Cultural Freedom is promoting, is more like re revitalizing that that scene. While the projects for Latin America, which in the political realm is the Alliance for Pro for Progress, had to do with modernizing. It was not revitalizing, but modernizing. So there was an update. Uh, uh, aspect and technology was central to it and that scientific discourse of music as research music as experiment um, it comes into play really strongly and this discourse is i mean kind of most infamously articulated by the composer milton babbitt and his you know infamous who cares if you listen or the composer a specialist depending on what title you prefer to, to run it by essay um and so michael like Babbitt was one of the kind of experts consulted, right, by the Rockefellers, and one who I think kind of helped steer the direction of what they do post Louisville. So, like, what is the Rockefeller agenda with modern music in the United States? How does it kind of shape the landscape for American composition? What is Babbitt's kind of role in, in triangulating these things? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear Eduardo's response about um, the way that Rockefeller might have seen their Latin American projects as, as one of modernization, whereas kind of uh, from the US perspective, they, they saw their projects a little bit differently because it wasn't about necessarily um, what was going on internationally, but what was kind of going on at home. And this Soviet threat at the beginning of the Cold War about falling behind scientifically and so um, Milton Babbitt was certainly uh, someone who was very successful uh, working with the Rockefeller Foundation because, um, and I think it's important in this case to use the, the title, the composer is specialist because he was conveying himself as a specialist, as an expert. Um, you can read in the letters that he sent to John Marshall or other program officers, uh, his, his reference to um, his background in mathematics, that he's, uh, he's taught both mathematics and physics, uh, not to mention music. Um, even in the grants uh, proposals that the Columbia um, Princeton Electronic Music Center uh, proposed to the, to the officers, they had a very scientific uh, leaning in, in the vocabulary that they used uh, about referring to their center as a laboratory, um, about measuring tape, precisely in feet and seconds and all these things. So I think it was a, a system that kind of reinforced itself because uh, the Rockefeller Foundation had always had this reputation of being a, um, a science-based foundation, more so than Ford. Oh, interesting. And they also um, took their structures of evaluation, the consultants and panelists and peer review, from their more kind of scientific programs, whether it was agriculture or medicine or other areas, they would use the same kind of criteria and the same forms to evaluate uh, the arts and music. So it would be kind of not just budgets and um, <clears throat> people involved, but also kind of levels of innovation, uh, kind of these very objective, seemingly objective ways of evaluating things. So um, uh, it was fascinating to see fleshed out in these memorandas and, and reports how much they saw their um, music and art programs also as ones about um, scientific progress. Uh, and that informed um, their decision to fund university new music centers, as you'd mentioned earlier. Yeah, and so the first big one of these is the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center, which is this kind of iconic home for one of the earliest major synthesizers that Babbitt and his colleagues kind of helped bring into existence. How did the, what was the infrastructure kind of post that grant? How many different programs did they establish around the country? Where were they located? How much money was kind of going into, into this big thing? So there was actually quite a bit of regional um, diversity and breadth. Uh, the centers spanned um, from coast to coast. 
with some big ones in kind of the, the center of the country in the Midwest um, at the University of Chicago, um, at the University of Iowa. Um, uh, there were, in total, there were uh, 19 grants to 12 institutions. And they, the Rockefeller Foundation gave away um, close to $2 million uh, to these university new music centers, which um, in today's value is, is roughly $18 million to $20 million. Wow. So that was like a lot of money to give away in five years. I think if we heard Rockefeller or Ford or any foundation giving away $20 million in today's society to new music or to um, kind of establish or beef up new music centers, I, I think that would turn heads. Yeah. So <laughs> the fact that um, this was happening amidst uh, all sorts of other funding um, that Ford and Rockefeller and the NEA were doing, uh, it was like, I, I compare it to a gushing water pipe in a, in a funding desert. Um, it really was uh, a lot of money to kind of not just play around with, but um, cement some uh, ideologies or, or aesthetic viewpoints um, regarding avant-garde or serialist um, or, or even just Western art music writ large. Right. And, you know, if we go further south again, Eduardo, like what was the Latin American version of this? What was Claim? How did it kind of come into existence? What was the Rockefeller role in, in helping bring it to existence? Right, so this particular uh, worldview that uh, Michael was describing, which which I think uh, you you had one of your episodes uh, discussing uh, Kajikawa's work and and with Lauren and and I think that one has to understand it as part of the sedimentation of that uh, investment of whiteness of of the study of music in academia, right? Like there's this influx of money and, and this is one of the ways that it, it happens. So what, what will uh, be similar in Argentina is that as the place is, uh, as this center is invented to have, first of all, a Latin American scope, which was a unique thing. It wasn't just a center in Argentina. It was just supposed to be for the whole uh, Latin America. Uh, there are, and with a director that is, we could consider very conservative within the modernists as Alberto Ginastera. I mean, he was experimenting with new techniques during the 60s for sure, but but he was by no means at the forefront, right? He was more uh, Berg than than Cage for sure. So the, the fact that Ginastera is willing to start this place, not just by bringing a lot of scores and creating a library and having great teachers, you know, bringing Copeland and Messian and Senakis, he actually allows or, or fosters the creation of an electronic music studio, something that he would never do and he would never address, right? Like this was not part of his interest. Uh, and he talks and he gets a, the connections precisely with Columbia Princeton so that Davidovsky uh, informs what equipment to buy because of course the model is coming from outside. That particular perception of getting models from abroad will be a space for criticism from the local composers, right? That will point out that the conditions of the United States and, and the conditions of a place like Argentina were simply not the same. So that in, in fact, there's gonna be a failure of these studios uh, everywhere else to succeed because of the, the, the impossibility to continue financing this kind of aesthetic. So to some degree, the aspirations of making like a US studio in, in Latin America only is successful while the Rockefeller money is there. Once it, it's gone, it disappears. Uh, the final aspect of the puzzle here is that, and, and, and I would love to hear Michael speak a little bit about what was uh, the case in the US, but once the Rockefeller gave the money, there was not a lot of supervision or follow-up, right? Uh, it's like, here's the money and, and you have the seeds here for creating something, but there was never like a preoccupation that, hey, you know, they're inviting Luigi Nono, which is like, if, if what you're trying to stop is communism, you probably should. <laughs> Don't invite the communists to town. Yeah. Right. Um, the one that is actually uh, waving the flag. So, so uh, and a lot of the composers were very close to Cuba and had, you know, had been or were traveling to Cuba during the years of the revolution. 
composers that had escaped Chile for being parts of the Socialist Party. So there is no follow-up on what happens to that. So it becomes actually a space of resistance to some degree through the students, not the professor, but through the students. Uh, so I don't know what Michael has to say about that, that aspect of the follow-up in the US because uh, it would be interesting to compare. Sure, I think that there, um, there were definitely similarities that there was um, a, a bit more of a hands-off approach. So they weren't deciding things like what to program, what to perform, um, which composers uh, music should be played. But um, there could have been, I suppose, a degree of um, proximity distance. The, some directors did go to concerts. They traveled around the US, um, like Norman Lloyd, would have these diary uh, entries about going to a concert at Sarah Lawrence or, or somewhere else and, and commenting uh, about um, the music that was played. Uh, but I agree that it wasn't as um, hands-on or controlling as it could have been. Um, one, one thing that I kind of uh, wanted to echo when Eduardo was saying about the this um, issue of uh, the prevailing whiteness of um, these approaches to funding and what was funded, um, both the the whiteness and the maleness. I mean, when, there were women composers who who kind of um, participated and were involved, but the room was just full of white men who were deciding on behalf of music um, and were deciding on behalf of mankind, uh, improving the, the situation of mankind. Um, and that's something that we kind of shouldn't uh, let go of too quickly. We should like pause and spend some time about how white and male um, these individuals were. Your book is titled Ask the Experts. And you know, you're kind of making this critique of the idea expertise is this incredibly valued thing in this period in the Cold War, because you know you look to scientists and officials and policymakers. It's all about expertise, but and so like these musicians, Aaron Copeland or Milton Babbitt or Leonard Bernstein, like they are they are I guess trying to get into the expertise conversation, but only certain musicians are allowed to be experts. So like, how does that actually work, and and how does it how does it narrow things in terms of not just like um, it's only white guys who are being listened to to create this very well-funded stuff, but also it shapes questions of aesthetics and genre and style too, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think I concretize that um, in uh, the the ways that expertise relies on cultural and social capital and how um, those uh, things criteria that are seemingly objective um, when seen in a resume or a CV. Uh, can be filled with their own psychological biases or, or things that are, are left out, ways of excluding others with expertise um, who have not traditionally had uh, capital, whether it's social capital, cultural capital, or economic capital. And I think what, what's interesting is uh, the way that um, I approach, uh, I've approached the book in terms of expertise and Eduardo has approached his book in terms of elite but uh, they're both kind of ways of um, preserving power and control within the hands of a few and excluding others, uh, not with per se um, evaluations of, uh, of quality or excellence. Um, there, there are, but those are kind of subjectively laid by the people who are involved and, and it becomes this kind of self-reinforcing system. So that, I'd love to hear more as well about uh, Eduardo talking about these elite art worlds and how, how there might be a kind of connection with the expertise that they provide to. It's, it's a point we've never discussed uh, in private, Michael, but it's fascinating that uh, these elites that are chosen in Latin America to lead this project, and in this case, I'm talking about the Ditella family, which were the local you know, rich family, the equivalent to the Ford or the Rockefeller in Argentina, uh, that are going to be hosting this center for music. Uh, the language that was used to describe who should be chosen to lead these institutions that were to be supported was to find indigenous leaders, right? Interesting. Uh, so to me, it was fascinating. A breakthrough moment was to find that the indigenous leaders, the Tela family, 
really were just as connected as anybody else. When I discovered that Guido Itella, who's the, the leader of the foundation, is he's the chair in the foundation, actually wrote his dissertation under Walt Rostow, who was the person that was giving you know advice to, to Kennedy and who wrote the, the rules on economic growth and the stages of economic growth as an anti-communist manifesto. So that even when going abroad, the, the, the circulation of ideas was within a specific circuit of cosmopolitan elites that are, of course, they see this indigenous leader, but they also see themselves when they see someone, you know, this person had graduated from MIT, his brother from Columbia, uh, they had PhDs, they had, they had already participated in, in, in this particular ideas that are circulating within academia. So when they look for who should we fund, they find a version of themselves uh, that is almost the same, but not quite. Uh, which is a very uh, homie baba kind of understanding of that mimicry, right? That that you see yourself, but not quite. So it was a perfect match. Uh, they they saw what they needed in these indigenous leaders. So it reinforces that you know uh, idea of of uh, elites self perpetuating and legitimizing themselves. I mean, one of the scholars that I cite is a sociologist, Michelle Lamont, who who talks about homophily or love of the same. And so um, value is created when these people see kind of a project that reflects maybe their own worldview. And so they rate that project better. Um, or even as you're saying, with these first degree personal connections, um, X might have studied with Y, who might be working with Z. And so expertise or, or kind of elite quality uh, become very limited in, um, in, the, uh, in the, its distribution among people. And that kind of concentrates things even further. Yeah, I mean, it's striking to me, like when I was reading both of your books, I was thinking a lot about this, you know, whether it's elites or experts, the at the same time that these, like these projects, the Rockefeller stuff, but also the National Endowment for the Arts, which, which we'll come to in which the Rockefeller, you know, that was partly inspired by the Rockefeller model, like these government officials or these foundation officials are trying to legitimate the idea of giving money to the arts to begin with, right? Like that's a, that in its, unto itself in the United States is not something that kind of like rich people give to the arts, but not necessarily these foundations or certainly the government. And so like, I'm wondering could you like could could they have given could they have made like i don't know john coltrane or miles davis like ambassadors for the arts in the united states in the 1950s i mean i guess some of these people were were ambassadors on internationally um you know jazz musicians as as cultural di diplomats but like it feels to me like they they chose the most kind of um selective white male like classically, like you look at a picture of this guy and you say, well, that's an expert because they're kind of trying to legitimate this enterprise. Does that, does that make sense? So I'm happy to respond to that. I mean, I think one of the um, great things about studying more than one institution in my case was to see how things worked differently. So with the National Endowment for the Arts, with the NEA, and with their National Council for the Arts, um, which is the presidentially appointed body that kind of um, worked in tandem, but uh, slightly oversaw the NEA, um, you see how a public agency or government agency operated differently because it had to be more transparent than what the foundations were doing. So um, we should remember that Nancy Hanks, who was the second chairman of the NEA, um, who uh, was um, very much kind of had this pedigree of uh, working uh, with the Rockefellers. I mean, she was very uh, intimately, professionally tied with Nelson Rockefeller, who Eduardo mentioned earlier, um, and brought over that system of, of panels and peer review to the NEA. But she was, um, she was a woman, obviously. Uh, she was one of the most powerful uh, women during uh, the Nixon administration and had a huge impact on the arts. Uh, in addition, there was Walter Anderson, who was um, an African-American musician, uh, composer, director, who was in charge of the music program at the NEA. And uh, Billy Taylor was on the National Council. And so um, I think you get more diversity with the NEA precisely because you have 
more private citizens, congressmen, senators who see the composition of the NEA, what um, what its programmers and directors are like, what its panelists are like, because these all are published um, annually in the in the reports. And that provides a, a degree of accountability that is a kind of foil, as a contrast to what you saw with Ford or Rockefeller. Yeah, I mean, this question of kind of government accountability versus foundation lack of accountability is is one that I want to come back to since it's, it's come up a lot more recently in, in how the kind of people are critiquing um, charitable donations and patronage and all this stuff. But, you know, one of the other like big kind of looming questions in both of your work is, is the issue of how these experts and elites shape the kind of aesthetic landscape for contemporary music in this period. And there's this dominant idea in the 1960s, 70s, or, or at least looking back on that period of, of what some have called like a serial tyranny or the idea that 12-tone composers, academic composers are um, really kind of in charge of musical institutions and, and force everyone to write 12-tone music. And this has been partly debunked, but it's still kind of this, this myth that sticks around. Um, is that what's happening at Claim, Eduardo? Like, is there, a, is there a comparable serial tyranny in Latin America due to this creation of this kind of modernist electronic studio? Like, who are the main composers at Claim? What is their relationship to the different kind of streams of, of the avant-garde that are happening in this period? Right, so the first thing to understand is that, you know, the students at Claim are taking both, you know, instrumental lessons, classes on history, and taking, uh, you know, electronic music studio. And, and it's kind of like a comprehensive master's program, if you will, because it's, you know, two-year two program that they're coexisting. And they depend on local professors and foreign professors. And you can see a change in the foreign professors, right, as the, from the beginning of the 60s to the end of the 60s. So the local professors, one being Ginastera, is uh, perhaps the more uh, conservative, uh, kind of like learned and applies some of the of serialist language and applies at this moment also some aleatoric tendencies, but not uh, to any particular extreme. It's very uh, careful in, in using successful ways of applying this. Uh, but his right hand, Gerardo Gandini, who is very young and basically the age of most of, this, of the fellows in the, during the beginning of the, of the decade, is much more in tune with experimentation, with cage, uh, with uh, you know he when he goes to to Italy he's learning from all the different uh, musica viva and all of these different uh, improvisation groups, and he is he becomes a, 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 an attraction for the students that to study with him to ask for his advice for his work and he he's like the the Bulezi guy of the right kind of like the. Sexy, younger, well, I don't know about sexy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aesthetically sexy. No, yeah. and everybody <laughs> recognized his capacity to like, you know, improvise on the piano, to stylistically play in different ways. And, and they, it, people really admired him. The younger students also like really admired him. So they start working with him a lot in terms of the local professors. The next local professor that is very important is going to be uh, Francisco Krepfel. Krepfel is from Romanian or Transylvanian descent, but moves to Argentina very, very, very young and is really a pioneer in electroacoustic music in Argentina, but really in electronic music from a very much Cologne-derived thinking, where the control of every sound parameter is important, where serialist understanding of you know, timbre and rhythm and everything is kind of like under, under that premise. So there's that dialogue happening there. Now, if you look at the early composers that are brought, there's a lot of Italians, Ricardo Malipiero, Luigi Dalla Piccola. They're being brought and they're working within, uh, you know, serialist and, and post-serialist, if you want, or strict serialist uh, techniques. And that's, those are the classes they're teaching, I think, among other things, because they're easier courses to teach than others, uh, you know, teaching these particular techniques. But uh, you also have people like Messian, who, when they come, they're not really thinking still in like the, the, the 1940s Messian. We're talking about a 1960s Messian, right? Like he's not really into that serialized uh, uh, or, or work with rhythms, but he actually comes to talk about Desitalas from India. 
And in fact, a lot of the students are a little bit lost. Like, what, what was this? Like, I, they, they don't know. Uh, same thing with Copeland. Copeland comes with a very much like a Pan-Americanist perception of what's happening and, and what it might be to create a music from the Americas, which is a little uh, off for the students. But as you move to the end of the, of the decade, you have uh, uh, Sessions being one of the, the, the people that comes, uh, Earl, Earl Brown, that is being brought right, um, and and in fact, Argentina was already by you know si since very early, even in, from the fifties, playing music by people like Feldman. When Feldman was not even being played in in, in New York, he was being played in Argentina because there was like an attraction wow, to this. Super interesting. So so the uh, the transition is from a much more conservative serial based uh, group of composers, with several exceptions, to a much more um, uh, let's say, uh, invested uh, composers in, in graphic uh, notation and improvisation. So there's there's kind of like that shift. So there's much more of a, it sounds like a more general eclecticism. I mean, I, the eclecticism, I guess, is happening in the U.S. and the, the mythology holds to the serial thing, right? Like, Michael, what is the role? Do you see the serial tyranny thing, whether or not it exists as being a product of Rockefeller money in, in a way? So um, I, I don't know if I completely believe that the, the myth of serial tyranny has, has been debunked. I think that um, others have, have said a lot about the prestige system that serialism had over the American Academy at this time. Um, nonetheless, I, I uh, because I mean, composers uh, wrote also, I mean, you can write serial music in in to, in a tonal way, and and people trying to kind of changed and evolved. I think I mentioned that more than a serial tyranny was this uh, tyranny of Western art music. Uh, that it wasn't just uh, serialism that benefited, but also different kinds of of um, quote unquote classical music, whether it was neo romantic or um, I mean the. The chance composers didn't really get um, that much uh, attention from either foundation, which is kind of interesting. There are other scholars who, who speculate uh, that they might have spent more time benefiting from um, the systems of patronage in Europe. But um, I, I'd still say that the Rockefeller Foundation, in particular, more so than Ford, still did um, give a lot of uh, money and power and influence to the serialists. Um, I mean, Milton Babbitt and Ralph Shapey and, and El Elliot Carter, um, they all received uh, significant amounts of money um, and attention. They were able to make some of the kind of, the, they were able to get so much uh, notoriety uh, because of their uh, positions of privilege um, kind of, overseeing and managing these new music centers um, at Chicago and, and Princeton. I mean, not so much Elliot Carter, but he was someone who was very close with all of these people um, involved and, and benefited from having his music performed. So these are all the money towards claim, the money towards these electronic music studios, and, and ultimately the way that the kind of infrastructure of the National Endowment from the Arts comes out of some of these models from the Rockefeller and Ford foundations. Like these are all kind of like planting seeds that, that, I mean, continue to exist to some degree today. So like, how do you, how do you see the, the role of experts and elites kind of reproducing itself over time so that the problems in the structures that we're left with now can be like traced back, I guess, 60 years to, to what happens back then? Well, I'm going to jump in, but I think I'm going to pass the baton immediately to Eduardo, because I think one possible thing that might be lost in that question is that once foundation money kind of um, disappeared or was not continued, then um, many of the programs, at least in the United States, uh, kind of closed shop. I mean, some did continue in, in smaller forms and, and continue to this day. Uh, but they were also really reliant on Rockefeller money that once the five-year grant period um, kind of ended and no money was continued, then um, they, they didn't exist in the same way. So, but I, I want to pass that on to Eduardo too, because I think he has an interesting story um, on, on claim. 
Well, maybe this is the one I'm thinking you're thinking about. I'm not sure, but uh, there is uh, something to be said about the amount of subsidy that uh, classical music in the U.S. and in Latin America has needed in order to exist to the level that it exists, right? And I think even today, uh, if we look at the at the uh, money that uh, somewhere like the Met receives from let's say governmental sources in general, exceeds the amount of every every other folk, let's call that thing folk, whatever that is, folk and traditional music program in the US, just the Met. Um, maybe after after the interview, we can take a look at the numbers, but it's it's pretty much, uh, you know, it, it at least doubles it, but I think it's... I think, I think Michael makes that point in the book, right? That like, there's more Met money than there is money for all of folk and traditional arts. Is that still... It's like the Met receives um, seven times the amount of all folk and indigenous music from foundations. And this was between 2006 and 2015. But yeah, it's, it's significantly yeah. more. So you see that when uh, the Rockefeller sees funding climb uh, in the, basically in the mid 60s, uh, among other things, because the Rockefeller decides that they need to look towards America. So they, they push a, a program that they called America First. Uh, which, uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, so they push this program and, and uh, basically CLAM ceases to have that support. It eventually closes because there, the, the models that were being imported did not function. They, they were not the way that, that uh, you know, the modernity in Latin America was functioning, period. It was a, a different model. And, and I think it reminds us that uh, all of these cosmopolitan and, and maybe if you want global, which they're really not global, but you know, this circulation of ideas in, in inter international and sometimes transnational ways, they always have a localized version and you always need to localize them because, it, and even within the country, same thing, right? It's very different to fund one of these uh, centers in the Midwest than it was in the East Coast than it was in the West Coast. So there is a connection there between the, the fall of the funding and the the you know amount of subsidy that classical music was needed to exist to this i will say and maybe this is the story that michael was referring to maybe not but one of the things that i was wanting to understand was this particular argentinian family why did they choose to sponsor the avant-garde and not something else and i think the reason was ultimately two things one is as a new elite, they were an industrial elite in a country that had traditionally uh, hosted an elite based on agriculture and on um, cattle, right? It was a very much uh, countryside elite coming from power from the countryside. They needed and they, they found a space that represented some of their ideas about worldviews, right? This was at the forefront of music making. This was perceived as being, you know, the cutting edge, which is where they were positioning themselves. But again, this is a very abstract level. When you talk to the two brothers and when you see what the two brothers are saying, the two brothers of the Tela family that ultimately are making the decisions, the, the, then you see that split that shows that a very interesting contradiction. One brother loves the arts, does not fully understand what's happening here, but understands that that music that he doesn't understand is ultimately the top expression of human creativity, right? Is that blind belief in the art so that if he doesn't understand it is because, you know, it's on him, but this is art, right? Ultimate creation of humans. So there's a blind belief in art. And the other brother hates this music absolutely detested and 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 think it's like the most you know like a, a, a complete waste of time but is being absolutely pragmatic in understanding that to legitimize their position as elites in the country they cannot simply be you know the 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 car making or a refrigerating making family they need to position themselves as an elite that you know position that that is uh, funding the arts that they're philanthropists that they're contributing beyond that and it succeeds because both of them eventually uh, they're no longer just you know elites in the industrial world they become part of of the political sphere and and one of them becomes a, a counselor for argentina for a couple of years the the equivalent of of a state department and uh, the other becomes a minister of culture and eventually ambassador in Italy. 
So, so there was a transformation of this money through the arts. It was effective through the arts, uh, which I think is not that different from what happened with the Rockefeller earlier in the century. Um, and and uh, yeah, it, it kind of connects the two stories in an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, this is maybe, this will get to kind of the big f- kind of finalish question that I have, and, and this might be like a long ramble, but like the the idea that like this is this project is the, these kind of two brothers and this family, um, you know, relates to this whole kind of conundrum with arts funding, I guess, in in the United States and I guess maybe in the Americas of it arts patronage being this kind of elite play thing that you have these families who gather enormous amounts of wealth and then hide it in tax shelters. And then those tax shelters become foundations. And I'm being extremely simplistic. Um, And then what gets funded is maybe the result of peer panels, but it's also ultimately it's a non-democratic system, right? They, they take money away that could go into our tax system and then give it to whomever they want. And like, this has become a critique recently. There's a great book by Anand Girid Haradash, which talks about, you know, the, the problem of, of, um, patronage today. Um, and that's, you know, goes back to the roots of these foundations in the early 20th century in the United States. And so like, I'm all for arts patronage. I, you know, as someone who leans towards the left, I'd like to see like a new WPA or a a reinvigorated NEA or whatever. Um, but at the same time, like even with those programs, they have all of these blind spots that goes back to this reliance on, on experts and, and on their system. So I'm wondering like, from your individual case studies, like, can you imagine a more just system of arts funding in the United States or, or in Latin America as well? Like, what is the ideal version of this system that makes it so that the, all different kinds of genres are funded and all, yeah, and, and the money, and it's democratic, maybe, if that's something you think is important or if that's just me being a, a lefty or whatever. Um, I, I think, um, Will, you and I have um, had kind of... Uh, <laughs> we had some drunken talk about this once, yeah. <laughs> I think these conversations are best had with some sort of drink in one's hand. Uh, but um, I speculate on this question in the epilogue of my book. Um, I mean, we, we have some statistics and some data to put some numbers uh, on foundation giving versus government giving, um, that with arts grants, uh, more than half of foundation grants to the arts are over $500,000. Whereas um, with uh, the NEA, the average size of a grant is $25,000. I think it's tied to this larger question of uh, the wealthy becoming even more wealthy and having an undue influence based off of charitable um, tax deductions than uh, um, those who, I mean, 90% of, of, uh, Americans who pay taxes um, or uh, make charitable donations, but not all of them uh, can get deductions for those donations. And so that um, kind of skews a system where we, on the one hand, say that we want both public and private uh, donations and, and contributions to the arts, but the, on the other hand, the, the scales are, are so tipped. And so I, I mean, without kind of going too far out left field, I do think that um, a greater role for the government, uh, whether it's the federal government through the NEA or state arts agencies that give away a significant amount of money um, into a much more diverse uh, set of um, artists, that they um, do need more uh, to be able to um, kind of democratize art making in this country. It's not just about um, Western art music or or orchestras or operas, um, which receive the vast majority of funds, but also all those other um, underrepresented minorities and women who are making art and music, but don't get to tap into um, arts grant making for all sorts of different reasons. So that's kind of my two cents and and I, I speculate as well on um, ways to, to reform um, tax deductions and, and the tax system uh, and, and everything. But you can check that out in the book yeah. if you have more, more uh, questions about that. Have you, do you have any takeaways, Eduardo? I mean, I also, you know, thinking again, like right now, arts and COVID having 
basic artists are getting no bailout whatsoever from the government in the United States, whereas in a lot of other countries they are. Yeah, though I, I think that Michael was touching upon some important things about the role of state art agencies and some of the projects right now that are realizing this by, by you know, things like uh, creative placemaking and art plays and all of those uh, programs that are taking place that to some degree uh, connect or, or, or use some of the lessons we learned here. And let me make a gigantic uh, statement here. Please, yes. From charity... From, from from the idea of charity, right? Me giving here in my community and maybe taking my clothes to goodwill, whatever it is, to human, humanitarianism, which is that virtuous act towards places that I don't even imagine and, you know, abroad. And philanthropy, which often acts in a space in between those or above those. Uh, there is uh, a problem with assuming they're good, right? There is, there is the assumption of virtue in all of those actions. But we understand because there's enough research. And I'm thinking here uh, on the work, uh, uh, Silas Kemegio, I hope I'm not destructing the name, from the University of Rochester. And then there's a book uh, by David Kennedy, The Dark Side of Virtue, in which there's studies on human, humanitarianism and the terrible impact that it might have, precisely because there is no understanding of the local dynamics, Right of whatever that might be at the international scale, you know, at the local uh, level, et cetera. And I think that that blind assumption of we need to be funding, you know, this particular art and not other coming from experts as Michael well produces, or that reinforce the ideas of elites, like I, I'm arguing, uh, is charged with problems, is absolutely charged with problems. So that the lessons I think that, that uh, we're gathering can even come from places like Brazil, where when Gilberto Gil became a minister of culture, what he pushed for were called points of culture, right? That was the translation, points of culture, which is visit places where cultural experiences or, or expressive culture is happening and find out what they need to be supported and amplified, right? And support those programs in that particular way. You need for real, not in the way that that indigenous statement from Rockefeller came, but for real, you do need people on the ground uh, that understand the conditions, that understand what the community needs uh, in order to be able to help them. In, in other words, they need to be the ones that organize this. What they might need are tools in order to get these grants, right? In order to get this, you, you, you might need to help, you know, in grant writing and you yourself as an, as, as an, as an agency need to shape those grants uh, and those applications in order that they, they, they can actually be accessible to these people. Um, so, so to some degree, I think we're, we have to turn a page and, and COVID reminds us of this on, on where are the places that uh, this particular, you know, philanthropy, humanitarianism, or, or charity is needed. And there's one weird conclusion that I've reached in, in the last couple of weeks that I'm not pleased with, but it might be a positive thing about neoliberalism. Great. It's good to have one. Yeah. I know. But I am thinking that to some degree, neoliberalism forces uh, some parts of, of, of this uh, white investment in music, right, to be challenged because it suddenly does not respond to the demands of the market. And we see that with our PhD programs, we see that with our DMA programs, we see with our, you know, with our notions of what success in a music career has, right, what that means. Uh, and, and suddenly, you know, liberalism is reminding all of the schools and all of these programs, perhaps there's not a hundred Mets to hire all our singers, right? And, and we might be thinking, hey, we might be training people to work in community choirs and, and that is success in our field, right? So without, if you start removing that subsidy, those realities started kicking in and they might actually be positive. So, so that was my sad realization regarding the, the neoliberal policies of a lot of our universities and, and uh, our government. I can get behind that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you both so much. Uh, this was a really fascinating conversation and I appreciate you, you chatting with me. Thank you, Will, for the invitation. Thank you, Will. This has been really enjoyable.
I'm very grateful to Michael Wee and Eduardo Herrera for that rich conversation, and you should check out their books Ask the Experts and Elite Art Worlds. We've got links to those and their scholarship more broadly up on our website, soundexpertise.org. Michael Wee is Alston Burr Resident Dean, an Assistant Dean of Harvard College, Dunster House, and Lecturer on Music at Harvard. Eduardo Herrera is Associate Professor at Rutgers University and is soon to join Indiana University as Associate Professor of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. As always, a big shout out to our amazing producer, the composer D. Edward Davis. Check out his music on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. As our season comes to an end, I encourage you to post your favorite episodes on social media and feel free to tag me or ask me any questions you have on Twitter at Seated Ovation. Many thanks to Andrew Del Antonio for transcribing our episodes to make them more accessible. Although we've got a bonus postseason episode coming out soon, next week is our official season finale a conversation with the legendary musicologist and polemicist Richard Taruskin. You won't want to miss it. <laughs>